But what we've just read is a very brief account of one of the most extraordinary things that has ever happened in the history of the universe. God became a human. If it wasn't for this event, we could know very little about God. Very little that would actually prove useful to us. But what we've just had described here is the moment in time at a particular location where God became a human. Now, if you want to use a technical theological term, it's known as the incarnation. There's another Latin word, advent's an in, uh, Latin word, it means arrival. Uh, the Latin word for a body or for flesh is carne. So an animal that eats other animals is a carnivore. The incarnation means that God, who has always existed as a spirit, at a particular point in time, took on flesh, took on a body. He became incarnate. Now, this is not something that we can afford to be glib about or to think that we've got it all under control because the idea of an eternal spirit becoming a human and taking on a body which was just like our bodies, subject to cold and tired and hunger, all the rest of it, that's a lot to take in. That's a lot to get your head around. And yet that's what the Bible tells us actually happened. I actually, I really enjoy Christmas. Do you, do you like Christmas? I like the phenomenon of Christmas. As a kid, like some of my happiest memories are Christmas memories. Uh, back when I was a boy, and I think this might be the same for some of you as well, Christmas holidays meant eight weeks without school because there was only three school terms, right? And so you knocked off a bit earlier and you went back a bit later than they do now. And the weeks leading up to Christmas, I think, were the happiest weeks of the year because Christmas, all of a sudden, once that's over, then they start showing the ads about going back to school again, new school shoes, and, and, and that really depressed me. Um, it still did as a teacher too, I've got to tell you. As uh, soon as those school shoes ad came on, oh, man. You know. But I never felt so free as those weeks leading up to Christmas because school seemed to be such a distant prospect in the future and the weather was nice and you could do as you pleased and then there was Christmas and it was the best meal of the year and I still love it but the world loves Christmas too for different reasons now part of my love for it could just be sentimental it could just be that it brings back lots and lots of happy memories of my mum's cooking and of the family all getting together and getting gifts that I really, really wanted because somebody cared enough to find out and then do it for me. So it may be that part of my affection for Christmas is just sentimental and if it's that, then it's an idol. Now I've got a friend who um, goes to a church where the pastor announced last year that he wanted to abolish Christmas and he wanted to abolish Easter because he said they're not Christian. They're worldly, they're pagan, and they've been imposed on the church. And he said the church should go back to just doing the Jewish festivals. Now, I disagree with that. Um, yes, we know that Easter and Christmas are Christianised versions of events that were taking place already, uh, pagan festivals that were being celebrated. So Christmas is the, uh, the celebration uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, where many of our traditions have come from, of the midwinter, right? And so when... The, the days are shortest 
and, and the winter seems like it's never going to come to an end in ancient times they used to celebrate the feast of the undying sun because they said we haven't seen much of it lately but it will come back and so in time when Christians grew in number they took that festival over and they Christianized it now I'm here to tell you when the Christmas celebrations are happening in Mafra and Melbourne and wherever else they're not actually thinking of the pagan one it's Christians who have perpetuated that so Christmas is our celebration that people have borrowed but what's happening now is that the world has taken our feast our celebration and they're giving it back to us in spades and so a lot of our thinking about Christmas has been overlaid with so many layers of worldly interpretation that we've got to do some excavation we've got to become archaeologists to dig down into it and work out what's worth keeping now I'm here to tell you I think Christmas lunch is worth keeping (laughs) right I think God's given us the capacity to celebrate and I think he likes it when we do so long as the celebrations are good celebrations and so if we're honestly gathering for the sake of remembering that there was a time in history when God became a human that's a good thing to remember and it also does give us a point of contact God wants us to celebrate good things he's given us the capacity to and if you think about the the eternal state uh, many of the images for, for living with God in eternity are those of celebration so the little celebrations we have now are anticipations of a much bigger celebration to come but like I say we've got to strip away the layers we've got to dig down deep with a careful shovel so we don't uh, break up the good artifacts that we find when we do our archaeology but if we learn the Christmas story from the world's overlay we'll get lots of distortion so I can remember do you remember Humphrey B. Bear who remembers Humphrey B. Bear? You probably don't, do you, Andre? But he was a children's and a great big bear, you know, that had his own TV program. He was on Channel 9, and since Channel 9 does the carols by candlelight every year, Humphrey B. Bear would get a gig. And I can remember thinking, if you only learn about Christmas from carols by candlelight, you could be forgiven for wondering, does Humphrey B. Bear turn up before or after the wise men in the Christmas story? <laughs> There's just so much overlay. So we've got Santa, we've got reindeers, we've got snowflakes, we've got winter wonderland and baby Jesus. And who doesn't love a baby? And so there's a lot of sentiment and and, and a lot of nonsense, frankly, that's been cooked into this Christmas stew. Now, if we're going to reclaim Christmas... Sometimes I hear people joking about pastors giving their annual true meaning of Christmas message. Well, we have to. Because if I don't, you'll get the the wrong meaning of Christmas every year, over and over again. Um, So we do need to go back to the original data and figure figure out what's going on here. Righto, have a look at the passage. Please keep it open and let's do some serious work on it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There's only two Gospels that tell us the events of the first Christmas day, the the Christmas story, that's Matthew and Luke. Uh, In Matthew we learn about, um, well we we see the birth here, uh, but then a little bit later we get the wise men. 
In Luke, you get the shepherds and angels. There's angels in both. But Mark doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus. He goes straight to Jesus' teaching ministry. John goes even further back and says Jesus has always existed. We sang about that before. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But he doesn't talk about Bethlehem and angels and shepherds. So Matthew has his particular reason for telling us about the birth. He's writing to people that have already been convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And they want to know where, how does it all fit, how does it hold together. So he's shown us the family tree, now he shows us the remarkable detail of the birth. Now notice this, in verse 18, uh, his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now that's roughly equivalent to our idea of engagement, except their idea of engagement was very different from anything we have these days. A girl was typically betrothed to be married, promised in marriage, round about the age of 12. Now, Joseph might have been a fair bit older, but he may not have been. He might have just been a teenager himself. But betrothal took place one year before the marriage actually took place. And betrothal was such a serious business that to break it, you had to have a divorce. You couldn't just say, oh, I'm over it. Uh, Let's cancel the party. That wouldn't have done. This is a culture where your behaviour contributed to your reputation, either honour or shame and no one wanted to do things that would cause them shame and so betrothal was something that was taken really seriously it didn't mean you were married yet because the man and the woman wouldn't come together and live together and they wouldn't have sex together until the marriage took place and after that the man would take the woman to live in his home but it was a serious binding agreement so serious that in verse 19 Joseph could be referred to even though they're not yet fully married as her husband because it was pretty much a done deal well into that scenario before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit now Matthew tells the story from Joseph's point of view pretty much Luke concentrates on Mary and how she was going there's every possibility it's a very strong uh, that that Luke actually spoke to Mary and got her recollection of things but Matthew tells the point that there's the story from the point of view of of, um, of Joseph and spare a thought for Joseph he's betrothed in an honour shame culture and he knows how babies are made and his wife's pregnant and he knows he's not the dad so what do you do now according to the Old Testament law A betrothed woman, you can see this in the book of Deuteronomy, a betrothed woman who had sex, let alone become pregnant, with another man, was subject to the death penalty. If she consented to sex be outside of the betrothal agreement with the other man. Now, the law provided that if she was raped or if she was taken advantage of, then only the man was put to death. But that's how seriously God took this issue in the Old Testament law. So you can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Mary could have been punished by death because Joseph was not the father of the child she was carrying and he knew it. But who knows what other people in town are thinking. And so if Joseph stays with her, he's going to have to bear a fair share of stigma for about nine months isn't he you all live in a country town 
How much fun is it knowing that other people are talking about you in a country town? Where one way or another, everybody tends to know everybody else's business. That was Joseph's situation. Well, we're told here, in verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Deuteronomy 24 contains the provisions for divorce. It was actually quite easy for a man to divorce a woman. No big deal at all. He just had to give her a certificate of divorce and that was it. But Joseph could have insisted on more than that. But we're told here he was a just man. Now, just is another way of saying righteous. Now, who else in the Bible is just and righteous? Well, that'd be God. And this is what we're called to be. People who say they've come to know God through the Lord Jesus are called to be like God. And Joseph's an example of a man who was. So in Psalm 116 verse 5 it says this, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, our God is merciful. But then it says in Psalm 112 verse 4, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful and righteous. That's the upright person. An upright person is a righteous person or a just person. Joseph did what Psalm 112 verse 4 says a righteous person should do. He was gracious. He was merciful. He was righteous. Not as completely as God, but as much as a human could be. And so rather than subjecting Mary to shame, he thinks, I'll just do this quietly because I can't now marry her. It would have been a shameful thing for him to have gone on being the father of a child he didn't bear. He didn't propagate, conceive. So he he says, I'll do it quietly. Now there's a lesson there. He could have seized his rights, couldn't he? I demand my rights. So many of us do. But Joseph didn't because he wanted to behave with the character he had found revealed in God. And that needs to be our template for the way we go through life too. Because so the world will say, demand your rights. Don't get mad, get even. But Christians need to say, no, God's shown me mercy. I must be merciful. And that's what Joseph did. But he's still left with the problem. Well, verse 20 to 23, Joseph learns about this event and that it's a miracle. But more than that, he learns the meaning of it. So we're told there in verse 20, as he considered these things. So Joseph's thinking them over. He's thinking hard about what all this means. We're not told how long he had to think about it, but put yourself in his shoes for a moment. This is a lot to get your head around. You've just been let down by the girl you were going to marry, apparently. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So there's this divine intervention. When the angel says, don't fear, what he means is don't shrink back from doing what you need to do, from doing the right thing. In other words, living with the shame of it in a small town, don't, don't let that put you off your righteous course of action. Well, the angel tells Joseph that the child that Mary is so obviously carrying has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. 
Now remember back in Genesis chapter 1, the very first words of the Bible, how did the world come about? In the beginning, God created the world. God did it. But in verse 2, we read there that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the same part of the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was active in creation and now he's active in a supernatural birth. Have you ever met anybody who scoffs at the idea of the virgin? It's not actually a virgin birth because we haven't got to the birth yet. She's just pregnant. This is a virgin conception. It's often called the virgin birth. But what we're talking about here is how a baby was formed inside the womb of a young mum even before the birth happened. So this virginal conception, have you ever heard anybody scoffing about it? I had a chat to a man only a few weeks ago. He asked if he could catch up and we talked about all of the questions he'd had since he discovered his mother's Bible and started flicking through it. And, um, and he asked me what I made of the virgin birth because to him it was a joke. He said, we know that doesn't happen. And what he's thinking is, oh, those poor idiots back then, they weren't as smart and as scientific as we are now, so they probably did think that babies could just happen without there being a dad involved. Well, do you honestly think anyone thought that back then? They knew the birds and the bees. The only reason Matthew's written this is because he had to. Everybody back then knew how kids were made. Everybody knew back then. That's why Joseph thinks, I better divorce her. Because he can't think of another way that a baby could come into a woman's tummy. Except that another bloke's involved. I've heard Christians mock it too. In fact, some Christians will say, it's not all that important. It's not an essential Christian belief. But I've heard Christians treat it as a joke. And I, I want to tell you, I want to urge you, be very cautious before you make a joke about the entry of God into human experience because what we're talking about here if this didn't happen your soul could not be saved I'd want to be very cautious before I made a joke about that if God in his wisdom and mercy and kindness decided to stoop down from heaven in the form of an infant so that your soul could be said, oh, just go easy before you make jokes about that. There's got to be a place in our life for reverence, I think. And reverence simply means knowing what you can make a joke about and what you can't. There are some things too important for joking. Anyway, the angel goes on and says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from, his, from their sins. Well, Jesus was a pretty common name. Um, Jesus is the Greek way of saying Joshua. And Joshua, very famous Old Testament character and a saviour figure because he was the one who led Israel into the promised land and overcame their enemies in the promised land. Jews were very fond of giving their children names that had meanings. They didn't choose their names just because they're famous pop stars or movie stars or sportsmen or you know because it sounds nice uh they chose their names because they had meaning and and joshua uh jesus means yahweh is salvation yahweh the god who rescued israel out of egypt yahweh is salvation 
So Mary's going to bear the son. You'll call his name Jesus. Joseph might have thought, it's my job to give the child the name. But no, that was taken from him because this is from heaven. The angel says, this is the name he's going to have because this is what this man is going to do. He will save his people from their sins. Now, salvation in the Old Testament has two sides and it continues to be the case. When God saves... It involves judgment and it involves mercy. So judgment on people that continue to be his enemies. Mercy for those that will seek his forgiveness. So this saviour is going to come and rescue God's people who submit to God and who repent and who seek his forgiveness. But salvation always entails judgment. Judgment for those who resist it. And so that's a very deep word. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place in verse 22 to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. We sang it before, O come, O come, Emmanuel. What a precious thought. Now, Matthew is really big on not just connecting Jesus to the flow of Israelite history as he's done in the genealogy. He also wants us to know that Jesus didn't come by accident, but that his coming, his advent, had been foretold in the Old Testament. And so in the next two chapters, there are five instances, and this is the first, where Matthew will say, as it was told in the scriptures. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So Matthew wants us to know that all of this took place because it had to take place because the Old Testament said it would take place. And he goes to a un- rather unusual story. He goes to the story that Steve read to us before from Isaiah 7, where Isaiah the prophet has to go to the king and the, 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 the Jerusalem is under threat of an attack by a foreign military alliance and people are worried about it and Isaiah goes to the king and says ask God for a sign and the king says I would never do that and so Isaiah says to him all right well God himself will give you a sign the virgin will be with child now it's a little bit hard to work out exactly what that meant in Isaiah's day and so there's been various theories but when Matthew thinks about the entry of God into humanity and the fact that it was foretold. He takes that example and he says, this is how God has behaved in the past. This is what we can expect God to do in the future. God, once upon a time, back in those days, said, I'll give you a sign, a sign that I am with you, a sign that I will save you if you look to me. And that sign was the birth of a child. And just as he did it back in Isaiah's day, he's doing it again now, except this is the, the event that Isaiah was looking ahead to in, in its fullness. Not just a picture, but, but the full, the full uh, idea. And so Jesus is the one who's coming to save his people from their sins and his name bears all that meaning. There's an old song we used to sing, he did not come to judge the world, he did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek, it was to save he came. Do you know that one? 
We used to sing in, uh, in, in children's things back when I was a kid. It's a ripper. He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek. It was to save he came. And when we call him Jesus, we call him by his name, Saviour. Look, that's a wonderful thought, Saviour. You needed saving, did you know that? <coughs> I needed saving. That's why God became a human, because there was no other way of doing it. My prospects, your prospects were dire. To meet a holy God on judgment day and to meet him in a condition that makes you unfit to live in his presence puts you in the direst of danger. You simply wouldn't be able to handle it. I wouldn't. So what did God do? He didn't leave us to our own devices. He behaved out of the heart of his character mercifully. Mercifully but justly, but mercifully. And he sent his son to be our saviour. Now what do we want a saviour for? When you go to the beach, you're happy to see the lifesaver. He's not there handing out lollies, is he? Or she? They're there to rescue people who, if left to their own devices, would drown. Jesus is God's saviour from heaven, sent to save people who, if left to their own devices, would end up eternally separated from God. That's why this is so remarkable and so important and something that we just simply can't joke about and we can't leave Channel 9 to tell this story to us. Or even worse, Kmart. Because if you go to Kmart often enough, you'll just think it's about truckloads of tinsel and stuff that'll be worn out by February. But this is the stuff. This is what it's all about. God sent his son from heaven, born as a baby, to bear the weight of our sin. And so this was something that was foretold in the scriptures, something on which our entire eternal destiny rests. So verses 24 to 25, Joseph, having been reassured by the angel, he responds righteously. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph didn't disagree with the verdict of heaven. He gave the boy his name, which is another way of saying that Joseph adopted him as his own. Now, what's the significance of all this? Well, Jesus is the saviour sent from heaven to meet our deepest need. The virginal conception of Jesus is the means by which God entered human life. Uh, Now, again, if if people say, I just can't believe in that, well, I... I don't have any problem with it conceptually because I believe that God created the universe. And a universe as vast and as magnificent as this, if God can create that, then is it too much to ask that he does the act of creation one more time? Within a young woman? I just That doesn't trouble me at all, logically. This man I was talking to the other day, he said, oh, I'm just too scientific, I'm too rational. But it strikes me it's entirely rational if the world's here... God just does it again except this time it's one human that's all I don't think that's too hard to believe at all but it's essential because you see the thing is by this we know that Jesus is genuinely a human because he was born of a woman but he's genuinely divine he's genuinely God 
because no male was involved. There's this divine and human cooperation. Were it not for the fact that Jesus was human, he couldn't die because God's deathless. Jesus took on a body because our deepest need was that a human pay the price for our sins. And no human is good enough to pay the price of sins except that he be God. So our salvation absolutely depends on the formula that's struck here. God took on a body, a body that could die and yet without sin so that our sins could be paid for through the sacrifice, through the substitution of one for many. Now that's good news. That's the Christmas story. That's good news. But it depended on the virgin birth. But is that all? No, there's more. Emmanuel, God with us. That's good news, isn't it? Have you ever had the sense that God is with you? That's what we mean when we say goodbye. Did you know that? Goodbye is a contraction of God be with you. Goodbye, God be with you. It's a blessing. It's a wish. That's what I pray for my loved ones. It's what I pray for you. God be with them. Well, he is. How? By his Holy Spirit, sent by his Son. How does Matthew finish his gospel? Matthew 28, 20. As Jesus is returning to heaven after dying and rising again, he says, I will be with you always. Now, I was talking to a friend yesterday. I asked about how his wife is. She's got cancer and it's getting worse. And he said, but the Lord is good to us. And he didn't mean it in any pious... This is a guy that's walked with Jesus for many years. Served him faithfully for 30 years in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, he and his wife together. And he said, she's getting worse, but the Lord is with us. Now, look, we've got illness problems here. We know that. Jesus will be with you. He promises. Call out to him. He'll be there. Emmanuel, God with us. God's not way out there. Well, he is, but he's right in here too. He's beside us. He's inside us. God is with us. That's the miracle of the incarnation. When we come in trust to the Lord Jesus and say, please forgive my sins, the guarantee is that he'll never leave us. And that'll take us through the deepest and darkest places. What we find in Emmanuel, God with us, is the whole story of the Bible condensed into one little sentence. Because in Genesis we see God living with human creation. The book of Revelation finishes with God living with his people again. And in the meantime we have the presence of Jesus in our life by his Holy Spirit when we put our trust in him. The Christmas story, God is with us. It took place when a young woman, the Holy Spirit conceived a child inside her Joseph agreed with the whole process and went on without fear and in obedience. But this is God entering the realm of human experience and human existence. God took on a body to save people like you and me. Let's give him thanks now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect again that your love for us was so vast, so profound your mercy for us so complete that you sent your son from heaven to save us. And so we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, born in the simplest of circumstances, born miraculously, but we thank you that all of these things took place for our sake. And so we pray that you would help us to treasure these things in our hearts 
Uh, we pray that you would help us to avoid the idolatrous aspects of the Christmas season and help us to concentrate on just the wonder, the miracle, the, the great news that in the fullness of time, in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus, you took on flesh for the purpose of saving us. And we thank you too, Lord Jesus, that you are with us always and that we can know your presence and your peace even in difficult days. And so I do pray for those who are facing surgery or facing uh, medical appointments and waiting for outcomes. I pray that they would know the peace that passes all understanding that comes because you have promised, Lord Jesus, to be with us. Father, as we face uh, a difficult world, a world that very often seems to reject our message, we pray that you would fill us with hope and joy so that our lives are good advertisements for the great news that we say we believe. Please help us in our work and our homes and wherever we're found uh, to radiate that joy, that peace and that hope that comes from believing these great Christmas truths. So we thank you, Lord God, uh, for these things and we pray that you would take us from these, this place rejoicing. Uh, we pray that you would help us to live in the light of all uh, that we've read today. We pray all these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen.